Hey, let's spend some time in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for the encouragement that we have in Christ. Thank you for the hope that you've given us in the gospel. Thank you for the community of the church, that we're not in this alone, but that you have, have called us out of the world and into your body, the church, that we are knitted together. Lord, we give you thanks. Thank you for this one day of the week when you invite us to gather together in worship and to make a big deal about Jesus. Thank you for your word that is true truth that speaks to us and, and helps us navigate life. Thank you for the work that Jesus has accomplished for us in his life and death and resurrection. Thank you for the giving of your Holy Spirit that you haven't left us as orphans, but you've given us the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Father, thank you. We ask that as your word is read and and as we share together from it this morning, that you would help us to see Jesus. Oh, how much we need you, Jesus. We look out on our world, we remember this weekend, all that happened on 9-11-2001, and all the things that have happened in our world since that Tuesday and Lord, our hearts could so easily become discouraged. So we call out to you, Father, and ask for your help. And Lord, we pray that, that you'd give us wisdom and that you would comfort those who mourn, comfort those who are fearful and anxious, help us to see Jesus. Lord, in the midst of all that's happening in our world, we look to you. And ask that you'd help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to keep going through the book of 1 Peter. And in our study of this book of 1 Peter, we come now to the passage for this week, which is 1 Peter 4, 12 through the end of the chapter. Now, I'm going to read through the, all of these verses. And you can follow along on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you, but I, I do encourage you to, to bring a Bible. But if you follow along on the screen, that's great. But as I read it and you follow along, I want you to be on the lookout for any particular words or themes that are repeated as I read it. Now, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled, for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, 
he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, this is God's word. And it comes to us and it speaks to us of something that, that none of us would choose. I mean, none of us would choose what the Bible says is true of all of us, which is that in this life, every single one of us will experience, to some degree, suffering. None of us would choose it. And yet it's a reality of the Christian's experience in this world that every single one of us will face suffering. Now, we've come to this theme of suffering many, many times in our study of the book of 1 Peter. In fact, 16 times in the book of Peter, Peter mentions the word suffering. Now, it's only in the Bible 96 times. Now, that means that 17% of all the mentions of the word suffering are found in this one little book. So if it seems as if we're just covering the same ground again and again, you're right, we are. Because Peter keeps bringing us back, bringing us back, bringing us back, reminding us that if you're experiencing difficulty in this life, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Isn't that what he says? He says, do not be surprised at this fiery ordeal among you. Now let me ask you this. <clears throat> let me tell you a story about two people. They both get on an airplane. And when they get on the airplane, they're greeted with the stewardess with a bright smile on her face. And one of the people on the plane is given a backpack, a parachute. It weighs 31 pounds. It's very uncomfortable. It's very tight on their shoulders. It makes them hunch forward. But the stewardess says to them, here is your parachute. It will make your flight so much more enjoyable, she says, with her marketing smile on her face. Well, he takes the back, backpack, the parachute, he puts it on, it's uncomfortable, it hurts his shoulders, it makes him look weird. Nobody else on the plane seems to have one on. In fact, the people start pointing to him and sort of laughing at him. And he begins, begins to feel very uncomfortable, singled out, ostracized. And he begins to think that maybe the stewardess, stewardess was wrong when she said that this parachute would make his flight more enjoyable. So eventually, he takes off the parachute, and he casts it aside, and he says, this parachute is stupid. Now the other person gets the parachute, 
And the stewardess comes up to him and very clearly and directly explains to him when this aircraft reaches 30,000 feet, it is going to experience a complete mechanical failure and it is going to crash. And this parachute is the only thing that can save you. He puts on the parachute. It's very uncomfortable. It cuts into his shoulders. He's hunched forward in his seat. The other people on the plane, they say, oh, we've been on flights hundreds of times. We've never had an airplane crash. It is a very rare thing. You know, you're really foolish for wearing that backpack, that parachute. And they start pointing and they start laughing. But he's convinced. He's convinced that what the stewardess has communicated to him is true. And so he keeps on his parachute. And though his flight crashes, he's saved. Which of those two people is more consistent with what you've been told about the Christian life? Have you been told that the Christian life is here to make you comfortable, to help you make it through this hard and difficult life? Have you been told that if you'll just bring Jesus Christ into your life, he'll make you a better version of yourself? He'll make you a little bit happier, a little bit holier, a little bit wiser. He'll help your performance at work. He'll make your life better. If that's the gospel that you've believed, the second you begin to experience ridicule or judgment or rejection, or discouragement, or sickness, or danger, or peril in this life, you will be tempted to give up on Jesus. But if you've been told the true gospel, which is this, that God saves sinners, that none of us is getting off this flight alive without the saving work of Jesus... If you've been told that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, then you will gladly endure whatever the gospel may cost you because the one who has called you out of death into life is worthy of anything that he might invite you to suffer with him in this life. Now, two things are important. You're never alone. Why do we so desperately need biblical community? Because there's only two kinds of people. Those who are currently suffering and those who will be soon. We all suffer in this life. You know this. You may be upset with me right now because you are desperate to try and lie to yourself to say, oh no, life is good, life is great, oh, everything's awesome. But deep down in your heart, you know that everything isn't awesome. That you need a Savior, and you need a biblical community to help you, to comfort you, to encourage you. Because life can be so doggone discouraging. So, 
We need a biblical community, and we have a great Savior named Jesus. And if you will take Jesus and the truth of the gospel into the very center of your life, I will not promise you an easy life, but I will promise you a Savior who will be with you every, every, every step of the way. Now, let's walk back through this passage and see this great Savior Jesus. Beloved, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, there's three couplets in those verses. Beloved and tested. Suffering and rejoicing. Reviled and blessed. Does that seem weird to you? Like, like this is not good marketing. Can you imagine Jesus' Instagram? A beautiful picture with the words beloved and tested. Suffering and rejoicing reviled. Those are not hashtags that we would ever choose. And yet they're the reality for us. And if you find in the Christian life it impossible to hold together the word beloved and tested, the word suffering and rejoicing, the word reviled and the word blessed, if you can't hold those things together, you're not alone. But let me suggest two more words that will help you make sense of how all six of those other words hold together in the gospel. You ready? Crucified King. Who ever heard of a king who was crucified for his people? Jesus Christ does not come to you and ask you to do something amazing for him. He comes to you and he says, I've done something amazing for you. The gospel is not come and die for King Jesus to show the glory that is his. The gospel is come and see the glory of your King Jesus who is willing to die in your place as your substitute. If you cannot hold the clear opposites of life together, then come and see the most amazing Savior you could ever imagine. His name is Jesus, 
who though being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. Being found in human likeness, he humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus Christ is the crucified king. And he did it for you. That is the only truth that will put suffering and love, blessing and reviling together and hold your life together. If you keep telling yourself a gospel that tells you to expect beautiful, wonderful, abundant, incredible things in this life, then you will continually be disappointed. But if you take Jesus Christ into the center of your life, He can make sense of both your blessings and your sufferings. Only Jesus can do both. All right, let's keep going. Verse, that's 2 Peter. Verse 15. We did that one. 16. No, I can't see today. You ever have those days when you just can't see? I carry these every week in my pocket. This is the first time I've had to put them on. So here we go. Every week, this is the first. God just wants to show my suffering and weakness. Okay. Verse 15. I knew I was right. Okay. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. (laughs) That's just great. It's a great verse. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. But it is to glorify God in this name. Now, what is that all about? Why list those four sins? A murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a troublesome meddler. Maybe your translation has something even more fun like busybody. That's a fun word. What do those four things even have in common? What, is it, what could a murderer and a busybody have in common? Well, let's think about it a little bit. What do each of those things do? What do each of those sins do? Each of those sins reach out and take something that doesn't belong to you. You either take a life or you take stuff or you take obedience, or you take time. Each of those sins involves taking, taking something that doesn't belong to you. But what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has received something they don't deserve. A Christian is something, someone who has received grace, who has received a new status, who has received a new name. A Christian who is someone who has received everything from Jesus and who's called a Christian. And when they hear that name Christian, they pinch themselves and they say, I cannot believe that me, I could be called a Christian. 
I'm blown away. The religious person or a sinner looks at life and says, you know, I deserve it. I deserve all the good things. I've earned all the good things I have. But a Christian looks at his good things and his sufferings and he has a smile on his face because he can't believe that he gets to be called a Christian. And having received something that he didn't earn and doesn't deserve, a new name, a new status as a Christian, he now gives what he cannot lose, which is praise and glory and honor to God. Now, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What's that about? You know, we're accused as followers of Jesus, we're accused by the world of being very judgmental, right? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever tried to share Christ with somebody and they say, oh, you're just being judgmental. You're just being holier than thou. What's the solution to that? One of the solutions is understanding what this verse teaches, which is this, that every time we point our finger at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back at us. And Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Judgment? Wait, Dave, you tell us all the time that we've been forgiven, that we have eternal life by grace, through faith in Jesus. What's all this judgment about? It's about this. It's asking yourself the question, is it precious to you that Jesus died? Is it precious to your heart that Jesus rose from the dead? Does it blow you away that God would love you, even you? Are you aware of the debt that you owe to a perfect, holy God? Are you aware of how amazing it is in your heart? Is there any spark of love and joy and worship and praise to the glory of Jesus when you hear the gospel? Or do you hear it and say, oh, it's time to check out. I've heard this over and over and over again. Or when you hear the gospel again, do you lean in to the wonder and glory of God's love for you? Yes, you. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith to say, am I with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength? Is my mind engaged with the truth of who Jesus is? Is my heart on an emotional level touched by the truth of the gospel? Is my will given over to serving my Savior, to the praise of His glory and grace. That's what it means to have three fingers pointed back at us. And when the world begins to see people who have taken their heart by the hand 
and led them to the foot of the cross and who are blown away at God's amazing grace and His amazing love when they begin to see us live in light of that judgment. They won't call us hypocrites. They won't call us holier than thou. They won't call us judgmental. They'll say, tell me more about your Jesus. And if it is difficult that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Martin, uh, John Calvin said that the, the Christian life is like this. The Christian life is, a, is lived in a course in the world that is like a dangerous sailing. It's like dangerous sailing between many rocks and exposed to many storms and tempests. And thus no one arrives at port except he who has escaped from a thousand deaths. We didn't sing it this morning when we sang Amazing Grace, but you know it because you know that hymn so well. But we didn't sing this verse. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It was grace that led me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. See, none of us are getting through this life without troubles, sufferings, and without grace. We'll experience both. And they work together in our life to lift our eyes to Jesus. He's not a guru, He's not a life coach, He's not a personal trainer, He's a Savior. And he's Lord. And if he's not those two things, Savior and Lord, and if there's not evidence in your heart, in your mind, in your will, if there's not evidence in your life of the work of a Savior and a Lord named Jesus, then take yourself by the hand and lead yourself to the foot of the cross and ask him to help you. To begin to rejoice in your sufferings. Now, how do we get there? Rejoice in your sufferings. I mean, I was barely holding on, Dave. I was barely hanging in there with you up to this point. But now you've gone too far, and you're asking me to rejoice in my sufferings? Look, it's not me. I read it. It's right here in the book. Rejoice in your sufferings. How do you do that? (laughs) You'll never do it until you see the joy of your Savior for you. Suffering for you. Hebrews 12, verse 2. 
Verse 1 says, I'll put it in context, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us, say, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How are you going to begin to rejoice in suffering? Only inasmuch as you have come to understand and see Jesus' joy in enduring suffering for you. What was the joy set before Jesus? Was it his obedience to the Father? He had been obedient to the Father for all eternity past. And all throughout his life, he had been obedient to the Father. Was it his relationship to the Father? He had been in perfect relationship to the Father from all eternity past. And throughout his life, he had been in perfect fellowship with the Father. The joy that enabled Jesus to endure suffering was you. Your salvation. You're being brought into an eternal relationship with him. And to the degree that you are experiencing in your heart and in your life the love of Jesus for you, to the degree that that's real to you, that's the degree to which you'll be enabled to rejoice in suffering and to no other degree. They're directly connected. Only in as much as you see Jesus suffering for you with the joy ahead of him, which was your being reconciled to him and to the Father, set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and one day even the presence of sin. To the degree that that grips your heart and life, that's the degree to which you'll be able to rejoice in suffering. Now, not only do we need the gospel, but we also need some models, which is why we step into a small group. It's why we get involved in biblical community. I've been walking with people in biblical community for years and years and years. I've been married 25 years, and up until this year, my wife and I had a small group in our home every week. Every week, all through those years, having kids, sending kids off to college, we have cried with people through divorces and deaths. We have prayed with people through lost jobs. We've rejoiced with people at new births of children. We have experienced all the joys and all the sadnesses that life offers, and we've done it together, which has made it that much better. So the only way that you'll be able to rejoice in your suffering is if you have Jesus at the center of your life and if you're seeing some models and you're modeling for a few other people how Jesus is becoming more precious to you in the midst of all that life offers you. So get involved in a small group because that's where you're going to see. You're not going to see it on Facebook. You're not going to see it on Instagram. You're going to see 
filtered caricatures of life. Oh, but if you step into a small group, you'll see life the way it actually is. And you'll see Jesus right in the middle of it. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Philippians, you read it this week, in Philippians chapter 3, he says this, I want to know Christ. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What's God up to in our lives? He is about the work of conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus. And that work, that work of grace, involves difficulties in this life. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. I mean, C.S. Lewis is British. You have to give him some grace. And does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Let's pray. Jesus, do, do you really mean to come and live within us? Do you really mean to go with us through everything of life? Do you really mean, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age? Your word says it's true. So despite all the evidence to the contrary, we will go on to believe that Jesus, you really do love us. You really have saved us. You really do intend to make your dwelling amongst us. You really will do everything necessary to make us beautiful to God and to one another. And you will finish the work you've begun in us. Jesus, to the degree that we've plugged our life into anything else other than you for security and safety and comfort and happiness, we repent.
we unplug our hearts from those idols and we plug our hearts into you, Jesus. Jesus, would you make us the kind of people who can face the sufferings of this life with joy because we have a Savior who's done it for us. We have a church who's in it with us. We have a hope that will not disappoint us. We pray in your name, Jesus.